Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everyone in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. And I want to share them with you. I want to bring them into your homes and into your ears. I want you to have such a good time inside their heads and inside their books that they light you up as well. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood and this is Lit Up. Today on Lit Up, we have the author of We Play Ourselves, Jen Silverman. We Play Ourselves is her first novel and it's incredible. Jen has written many acclaimed plays. She's working on a TV show right now. She's written short stories and is a prolific drawer of sad pandas. Jen, thank you so much for coming on Lit Up to talk about your zany, smart and sharp novel, We Play Ourselves. Thank you so much for having me. This book is about what it means to be famous and it's about female rage and anger and even knowing where to locate that and there are all these great young girls in it that teach our protagonist about what anger is. It's one of the sharpest novels I've read in a long, long time. Before we get into your book, I want to talk about this one particular line that as an Australian really struck me. And I just thought, oh my gosh, she just nailed us. Um, You're talking about an Aussie character in your book and you say of him, he has that kind of relentless good health that Australians radiate. Underneath it is usually a relentless alcoholism, which they seem uniquely positioned to survive. (laughs) I thought this just captured all the Aussies I know kind of in America. And I wanted to know like how many Aussies you have in your life. 
<laughs> Don't hate me, Australians. I meant it with love. My partner lived in Australia for a while. He went to NIDA. And so I have been the past couple of years, we would go out to Australia and stay in Sydney, see his friends who became my friends. So I wrote that part of the book when I think I was in Sydney at the time, actually. I auditioned for NIDA, you know, 25 years ago. They told me I didn't have enough imagination, which was like the most brutal thing to say to an 18-year-old. It's like, wow. Anyway, I've, sh I've shown them, you know, proven them wrong. Yes. Well, we're so thrilled to talk to you. You write in so many genres, so many places. You're a well-known, award-winning playwright, and you've written uh, short stories too, but now a novel. But it seems you can't escape the theatre and plays. Where did the impulse come to write your novel, We Play Ourselves? We Play Ourselves follows a playwright in the wake of a massive public humiliation she flees from New York to LA and she falls in with a charismatic and manipulative filmmaker who's making a movie about a teenage girl fight club and things spiral from there. And the impulse came in my own life. I had just moved to LA, although not fleeing from a massive scandal, sadly, or not sadly as the case may be, but I was writing, I had started a new job writing in a TV room. So I was living in LA for the first time. Prior to that, I had been working in New York as a playwright for years and years, and sort of for the first time in my life and my practice, I had a bit of space away from theater and away from New York. And in the moments of really longing for it, I could also see it very clearly, both the things that I loved about that life and also the things that were really complicated and tricky. And although the novel, I think, is about many things that are not theater, it began in in that rich terrain of, of theater, of public humiliation, of giant scandal, and a young woman who's trying to reinvent herself in the wake of all those things. Why did you call your book We Play Ourselves? I called the book We Play Ourselves for two reasons. First of all, you know, of course, there are all of these ideas of performance, how all of the characters are playing different versions of themselves for each other, for themselves in different life moments. Like I think we all, as humans, have so many iterations of ourselves that we're constantly sort of inhabiting. And it can get really confusing when you sort of forget what's the performance and what's the self, which, which is sort of one of the main journeys that Cass, the protagonist, has. And then the flip side of that, of course, we play ourselves like we trick ourselves, we lie to ourselves, you know, there is an inherent, I don't know, an inherent deception built into any performance. And I, I say this as somebody who had most of my life has been in the theater, you know. Well, Cass, our incredible main character, has this moment with her therapist. And the therapist does say to her that she has a dysfunctional relationship with theater. And I wondered, I actually felt, I'm like, this has to come from personal experience. <laughs> How would you describe your relationship with theatre now, I guess having had a bit of distance from it? What was the most dysfunctional moment you had with theatre? Theatre, or how can I say it? It's hard to talk about in a way. It's like you, you give your life to theatre because you love it so much, right? What's tricky is that in a country where the arts are so undervalued and where the arts are tied to economics – a relationship that is so passionate and so obsessive can't help but be dysfunctional in a way because one is having to hold in one's mind simultaneously, you know, the realities, the economic realities of what it is to, to be in the arts in America and also your love for this thing. That's sort of a, a big picture view of it. 
the book began in a way as a love letter to theater. And, and, and I mean a love letter in the truest sense that the love is based in a real knowing of the dark side as well as the light side. You know, like it's not about an infatuation where you just think everything is so great. You're so enthusiastic. I mean, I remember coming out of grad school and theater is the best thing in the world. Like, how could you not love it? But when you've been in that industry, in that field, day in, day out, the grind becomes really real and you know what you're sacrificing um, and you love it anyway, you know, and so that, that's a really long answer to your question, but that's sort of the, the milieu out of which the book came. It's a beautiful answer. And I think even in that answer, I can feel the intensity of that struggle that it is to live in New York and do the kind of theatre you want to do. And you've spoken about the intimacy that theatre is, and I think because there's that passion and because it's hard, you make such intense friendships and relationships within that kind of theatre cocoon, particularly in that rehearsal process. In your book, a huge theme is how to manage the boundaries within a professional situation when you're getting all these people who are taught to kind of shed all their boundaries and like to bring all their vulnerability to this space. But there's so much murkiness in there when people are being so passionate around one another. Why did you want to explore what it's like to be a young professional in theatre versus kind of a more seasoned, in this case, a wonderful older woman called Helene. What were those two kind of parallel dynamics? That's a good question. I mean, I, I was interested in both ends of the dynamics. So you have Cass who is still in the place of being completely exhilarated by the prospect of doing theater in a way that is supported or resourced by an institution that's visible. I mean, she's 33, so she it's not that she's 21. Like, she's been doing theater really downtown. You know, she's been doing theater in found spaces in Judson Church. She's been doing work for many years, but it is the fact that an institution decides to take a gamble on her and sort of a midtown theater produces her that suddenly makes her visible. And so she's in a space. Everything is new. Everything's exciting. One of the themes that really interests me in general, is this question of success versus failure. You know, what are those things? What does it even mean? And she feels in that early part of the book that she must be a success. Everybody's talking about her as if she is one or she's going to be one. She's promising. She's the voice of her generation. Like there's a certain image being built about her that she's very hungry to buy into. And, and so it changes the way that she sees herself and it changes the way she performs herself. Whereas someone like Helen, her director, who, you know, is in her 50s, has had a long career, Helen understands that you have to be a bit more armored, or, or if not armored, you have to have an understanding of yourself that is based in something other than the stories you're being told about how you could be. And she tries to communicate that to Cass, you know, a few times, where Cass is getting particularly excited about some, you know, some vision of herself, like Helen keeps trying to tell her, you know, what matters, what are you making? What are you saying with what you're making? If people like it or they don't like it, that, that shouldn't change what you're saying and what you're making. You know, like don't, don't lose yourself in all of this. And I remember both the excitement of coming to the city, I think I was 25, and how everything feels like you could completely be swept off your feet, taken on an adventure you would never have in, in any other context. And also 
learning from friends and collaborators who were older than I was and who had achieved a real sense of themselves outside of this pressure cooker environment of, you know, success, failure, performance. Cass has a tendency to fall in love many times. And I think when we're young people, or I mean, 33 is still young, but particularly in the creative fields, when the intensity feels so strong, the passion merges. And sometimes we don't know, we confuse those feelings, whether it's passion for the project, the moment, the city, the situation. We can misguidedly think it's all about a person within that. How do you find as a professional managing those boundaries yourself? Oh, I think one of the main differences between myself and, and Cass and one of the reasons I found her so interesting as a character to explore is that she doesn't have any boundaries. You know, over the course of the book, she sort of begins to learn that there are lines that if you cross them, you can't go back. You know, there's a series of scandals. There's a series of moments in which she is brought to sort of an ethical brink. And, and so she learns to some degree what a boundary is. For me, it's a bit different. I mean, I I think I'm drawn to theater and drawn to a TV writer's room, drawn to making work in collaborative settings because that intimacy is so important to me. I value my collaborations really deeply and I tend to work with the same set of artists again and again and again. Like I, there are bodies of work that I've built with people across a decade, you know, at this point. I think part of being a good collaborator and part of creating an environment that can be both intimate and safe is identifying and being really thoughtful around boundaries. You know, like one of my closest collaborators is a director, Mike Donahue. He and I do a lot of theater together. We've been out of town in many places together. We've lived together. I should say my partner, Dane Laffrey, is a scenic designer. He designs almost all of the first productions of my plays. What makes those collaborations so healthy is that there's a way to be in the work fully when you're in the theater. And then when you leave the theater and you come back to the Airbnb or the apartment or the place where you're all living together, you talk about the book that you're reading, you watch some TV, you go for a walk, like you sort of, or you talk about the work and you deepen the work, you know, like you have to just be really thoughtful about who somebody is holistically and not just who they are as your collaborator. It sounds like you have such a healthy relationship then, which must have made it even more fun to write about Cass, who's in the middle of all these scandals. And Cass has fled New York because she's been kind of shunned by lovers. Her agent won't answer her calls. I don't know if you would call the situation in this cancel culture, but it seems like people can't really make a misstep much anymore before they're just tossed aside. And is that something you wanted to explore here? Yeah, I'm really interested in the question, not only the question of, you know, what it is to be shunned by a community, because that's such a specific and alienating experience, of course, but also the, the question of the comeback. You know, I think America is a culture that is obsessed with the comeback, whether it's Britney, whether whoever it is, it is a, a comeback is achievable for a man. You know, we are well trained in the art of the comeback, and it is so rare for a woman to be able to do that. But I was interested in the question of specifically for a woman and for a young woman, when Cass has humiliated herself and participated in her own downfall, but when she has really lost 
the trust and respect of her community and it has sort of become a joke. The thing that pushes it over the edge is in some ways very extreme. And so there's the added difficulty of people being able to laugh at her as they look down on her. You know, like she, so, so when you're in that space, how do you possibly come back from that? And Cass begins by wanting to come back and thinking of all these ways in which, well, if I did this or I did that, you know, I could achieve success, I could be successful again. And, and then over the course of the book, she and some of the other characters who are in different ways involved in similar struggles really have to start asking, what is it, like, maybe maybe you don't get a comeback. Maybe you get a go forward, you know? And if you get a go forward, what does that look like? Like, if you, can you actually reinvent yourself publicly or is the reinvention that matters a quieter one that happens inside you, you know? And also just doing the work again. If you're yeah. allowed back in just to quietly do the work again, it seems in our moment now, unless you're broadcasting on social media what you're doing day by day, but then it's not happening. In your novel, there's this throng of fabulously like gorgeous, complicated teenage girls but their generation is so much about just wanting to be famous. And I think it's interesting how you contrast this character, Cass, who essentially has done the work to get where she is, but has kind of been swept up with trying to stay successful. And then she meets all these young girls who also just want to be famous and they don't even know what for. How would you describe the kind of generations of women in the book and their relationship to work. Something that strikes me and, and in the book strikes Cass is that these girls, the teenage girls that she meets, who are shooting this sort of a hybrid documentary film that is being directed by a woman named Carolyn. Um, and Carolyn is of Cass's generation. And the film is about a teenage fight club, essentially. It's a response to the original classic fight club or repurposing of it. There is, of course, a language, an unapologetic language that these girls have around fame. But I, I also think that there is just a different relationship to visibility, to being public, to being vulnerable, to being seen, that this generation, I mean, they come up with iPhones from the earliest ages. They come up with TikTok and Instagram and, you know, whatever other platforms. It's just a different level of comfort or a different kind of self-expression. And so these girls that Cass encounters are very comfortable with being filmed all the time by Carolyn, you know, being filmed eating cereal, being filmed having a fight, changing their tampon. The camera is just another steady presence. Whereas to Cass, it feels very sort of jarring, almost violating to have a camera pointed at her. And the other sort of thing that, that I, I'm interested in exploring in that Cass begins to realize with this group of girls is that they also have a different relationship to to their anger, I guess, to, to rage, that women in my generation, and I think all, all the generations above mine, we have been conditioned to suppress our anger, to be pleasant and convenient at all times, to not inconvenience anyone or be rude, that there's a way in which anger is a thing that should just never be shown. You shouldn't take up that much space. In the generation below, you know, Cass is watching these girls who are very comfortable expressing their anger, who have learned and, and sort of in the course of this film are expressing the anger as something of value, you know, something that's worth shooting. 
There's a point in the book about female rage and anger that I thought was so pertinent and I related to so much is that, you know, women's anger, I mean, I'll speak for myself too, it takes a long time to even locate the anger. We've been so squashed or we haven't even been given examples of how to express it that actually sometimes you don't even know you're angry. You think you're sad or you're a bit depressed or a bit overwhelmed. But in fact, you're angry and you didn't even know it. And it's part is kind of scraping away all those things that, that, that we should have done, you know, or what the world has told us to be and be like, I think I'm just angry, you know. But then what do we do with that? And I love how these girls, they don't have to go through that confusing process. They kind of can tap into their anger a lot more freely. How do you deal with rage? Not not super well. I mean, your description earlier of your experience of, you know, am I angry? Am I sad? Like that, it's hard for me to know when I'm angry because I have been so conditioned or I have participated in conditioning myself to try to not not be angry. And I think as I get older, it becomes easier to identify a feeling to say, no, what just happened was unjust and unfair. I'm angry about it. I'm going to speak to that anger. But for me, it's sort of a three-step process. And I'm always amazed to see some of my friends, particularly my male friends, who something happens and they're angry. And they say that, you know, that's bullshit, what just happened. Like, and, and they can speak to it immediately. And for me, it's always, it takes me a minute. I think I feel sad. I feel confused. Oh no, I don't feel sad or confused. I feel angry, you know? Absolutely. Sometimes it takes me a day yeah. to realize. Like it's not even just half an hour. It's like yeah. that thing that happened yesterday that person said that? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's like walking down the street with all those comebacks that you're like, what, you know, I said that. And I'm thinking, I am so far away from understanding my own instincts. Or your instincts have been shaped. And I think it feels like a little bit of an overstatement, perhaps to say they've been shaped for survival, but maybe not. I mean, I think there is, for so long, there has been such a specific space that women are permitted to take up. And, and to try to take up more space than that had, doesn't, has not turned out well. And, and we have witnessed ways in our own lives in which that hasn't turned out well. And, and so I feel like some of what is required of me is a reprogramming of my instincts. Because how can the world change if we aren't changing, you know? And also through your characters, you can flex those muscles, can't you, with some women who are able to, to go there in the moment. And it's kind of refreshing to see them in theater and in books, because it almost reminds us that we can be like them. Right, right. And that there's lots of ways also for rage to exist in the world. I found Cass a particularly interesting character to explore because she's so raw. You know, she will, if she's angry, she's furious. If she's in love, she's 100% all in. Like she doesn't have any kind of natural reserve Whereas I do. I mean, I was born in the States. I grew up in a lot of different countries. So much of my childhood was being an outsider in a place I didn't belong. And so much of that experience is really about hanging back and watching and figuring out what are the rules and understanding the language. And so I think my immediate default instinct is always 
just to hang back a little and to observe. And Cass is 100% the opposite. It also sounds like because of your upbringing, you had to start over again and again in different places. And Cass has to start again too. How do you think starting over so many times for you informed how Cass starts over? I think it informed it really deeply. I mean, I have labored under the fantasy that all it requires for you to change your life completely is just to go to a different place. And and some of that, of course, is based in reality. Like I have a lot of experience moving to different countries and then operating in a different language, figuring, you know, different cultural rules. Like you, so much does change when the language changes, the way of thinking about language changes, the values change. Its values are built into language. I mean, that change is very real. But then, of course, the core of you still remains. And so for Cass, New York becomes a disaster. I'll go to LA and reinvent. I think she and I labor under the same fantasy. And built into the fantasy also is maybe a a constant striving to, to really shed the parts of yourself that you don't like. And maybe that striving is what makes up a life. I don't know. Well, it's like that saying, everywhere you go, there you are. You know, you try and... I've tried, I lived in LA, tried something there and I went home to Australia and then it's almost like, oh, I'm still weird, anxious me. I thought this place (laughs) was meant to cure that. And then once you realize, oh no, that's you, I have been like, oh, okay, so how do we make this work? Right, right. Well, I will tell you that when I was in Sydney, I was like, oh, no, this is the place that if I moved here, everything would be great. I would be a completely different person. I would be the right kind of person. (laughs) So in my mind now, Sydney's the place that will all come together. Oh, well, it is a great place. So maybe that's true. But I did try it and it didn't quite work. So take my advice. (laughs) Uh, Also within the novel, Caroline, who is this very established filmmaker. And I'm sure as I was reading it, I was thinking, who is she based upon? You know, she's been the Sundance person and you just want to be in her orbit. And yet I also felt that we're really kind of seeing a film about her as well. The novel is almost about her and how she becomes so invested in her own art that she is manipulating these young women and what responsibility does she have for them? It's almost like this commodification takes over everyone, really, like what is left at the end. Right, right. And what's tricky, what I find interesting about Carolyn as a character is that she is so unapologetic. She is to some degree, perhaps one of the most honest characters in the book, even though, yes, she's manipulating these girls. She is invested in the success of the movie over their individual health and well-being. You can make those (laughs) statements, but she says to Cass from the beginning, I mean, she's very clear, like, this is what the marketplace wants. This is what I'm making. This is the way in which we're going to spin everything. You're going to be the queer filmmaker. It's great to have a queer voice in the room. Like, that's something I need now. You know, like, BB's one of the characters who's openly gay. She says, BB's going to have a coming out moment with you. You're going to tell her it's okay to be gay. She's going to decide it's okay to be gay. And then we're going to get a GLAAD award. Like, she just has this detailed and specific and not incorrect understanding of the marketplace and the landscape and the difference between 
her and Cass that Cass starts to realize is that Cass feels guilty and apologetic and unsure about success and about ambition. And Carolyn feels no guilt, no apology, no lack of certainty. And again, there's the thing, a question of like, is that a bad thing? Bad things come out of it, sure. You know, the book takes us to certain places where an, a real ethical quandary is on the table. But also, is Carolyn's lack of apology and her self-possession and her ability to operate within the constraints of the marketplace, is that not in some ways what men have been doing for 100 years? You know, I don't know. Like, I don't actually have any answers in any of this, but, but these are questions that through the vehicles of these characters, I was really interested in and in kind of exploring. I don't want to miss out on talking about the wonderful nemesis in your book. And <laughs> I'm wondering if you could explain the situation between Cass and her nemesis and kind of maybe give us just a few juicy details. Cass's nemesis is another playwright named Tara Jean Slater. And Tara Jean is 21, about to graduate from Yale, and she is living the life that Cass not only wishes she had, but believes she should have had. Things seem to come so easily to Tara Jean. She's offered productions, commissions, acclaim. You know, she is making these works that are exercising her personal demons, and people are losing their minds because you know, female trauma, particularly from a very young person, is is extremely marketable. Cass is fascinated with her. She's electrified by her. Some of what she's electrified with is deep envy and then, of course, resentment and hatred. And some of what she's electrified with is sort of this wonder or admiration because Tara Jean is so raw and so open and she's just saying the most personal things about herself to the world and, and doesn't seem to care what they think of her. She does, she's, whereas Cass is consumed constantly with the thought of what is being said about her at any given moment. Even prior to the scandal, Cass is obsessed with sort of how she's seen. And Tara Jean, you know, shows up in her velvet overalls and her little yellow shoes and she doesn't seem to care. And so Cass's obsession with her increases and becomes ever more complex and brings her to the point in which she is attending the opening of Tara Jean's new play. This is shortly after Cass has had a slightly disastrous experience with her own first play. And at this opening, Cass just kind of completely loses her mind and does something unspeakable. And then the novel that plays out from there, and but Cass remains kind of fixated on Tara Jean, you know? And so even when she's in Whole Foods, she's buying bagels, she's like, she's heard through her agent's assistant that Tara Jean is not eating gluten at the moment. And Cass thinks, well, at least I can eat a bagel. Like if I can't have anything else, I can have a bagel. She just becomes completely fixated on what Tara is and isn't doing and, and, and therefore what Cass herself should or shouldn't be doing. And then Tara Jean shows up in L.A. where Cass is. And I, I hesitate to offer more spoilers I around know, that. I know, it's but so it hard. Because <laughs> it's just so fun. Jen, maybe you are someone's nemesis and you don't know it. I'm too tired to have a nemesis. I mean, I'm taking applications. If anybody would like to be my nemesis, they should let me know. But I just, life is too short. <laughs> You know, what's interesting, I will say this, even though, of course, the Tara Jean cast thing is, even though it is fictional, part of what is tricky, there can be a pressurized and there can be a highly competitive environment if you want to participate in it. And and I, for the most part, I don't because I feel that 
writers should be each other's champions. But I, I understand, of course, and I have experienced when there are so few opportunities and you are being told that the writer next to you is your competition for that opportunity. And I had an experience once with another writer who is now a very close friend of mine, but I met them, we were working together on something and from the beginning, I was like, oh, I'm going to be friends with this person. I think they're so cool. We were having drinks and they said, you know, I was really prepared to hate you. In fact, I've hated you for some time, but I guess I can't anymore. So let's be friends. And I said, what? We've never spend any time together. Like, why did you hate me? And they're like, oh, well, I applied for this one thing a while ago and I didn't get it, but you got it. And I sort of just hated you since then. (laughs) And the thing that they named, nobody really would have known about it unless somebody had either applied to it or like your mother would know about it because you told her, you know, but it was such a small thing. Like we both laughed, but also it was interesting to me because I thought, of course, like I've also had the experience of like deeply wanting something, pouring myself into applying for it, not getting it, seeing somebody else get it, thinking like, oh, what did they have that I didn't have? Like it feels sometimes personal in a way that of course it isn't. And for this other person to just have the guts and the honesty to be like, oh yeah, no, I thought you were terrible. Like I hated you. (laughs) I was like, we're going to be friends. Yeah, I think some of the people that I've been most kind of repelled by at first, I have obviously been confronted by a part of myself in them that, you know, I like or I don't like how they do that or they have, usually it's about someone having the guts to do the things I don't have the guts to do. And then cut to, like you said, three days later, you're like, I think I've found my new person here, you know, a new best friend because you let all that go. It sounds like through every project you do, you're obviously mining these questions that are so important to you. And I'm wondering with this book in particular, what did you learn about yourself by the end of the book that was surprising? Something that really stuck with me in writing the book was ultimately what Helene says to Cass, which is make the next thing. Remind yourself, however you need to, that you love the craft that you've chosen. You love it whether you're succeeding at it, meaning people think you're great. You love it whether people think you're terrible. You did, like, you are the person who is responsible for your relationship to your practice. Nobody else is. And that, having written the book, I find myself returning in my own life again and again just to the the moment where I ask myself, well, what's the next thing? You know, how do I make the next thing? And how do I keep asking the questions that I'm asking, regardless of whether other people are interested in those questions, you know, that it is such a reminder to me, or I had to write the book maybe to get the kind of reminder that one's relationship with one's art and one's practice will always be a deeply personal thing. And that you write things perhaps to invite an audience in or to share those questions with an audience, but but ultimately at the end of the day, it's it's you at the desk, you know, you're alone. Can you tell us about the depressed pandas in your life? <laughs> so I have I have a practice of drawing really depressed pandas. So on Instagram, my account is called This Panda is Sad. And it started as, I mean, a joke. So many years ago, I would be in rehearsal with my collaborators and, and 
I would just be drawing, you know, in the downtime between things, I would be drawing sad pandas. And usually when it first started, the sad pandas were reacting to various, you know, like tech mishaps that were happening or you know, we would be like 10 minutes away from dinner break and Sad Panda would be drowning itself in a martini glass. Other theater people started sort of discovering it or thinking it was funny or showing other people. And then then I started drawing a Sad Panda tarot deck. And that sort of has been the project of the past few TV rooms. Because when I'm in a TV room, like I, or, or sort of when I'm doing anything, I tend to draw not because I'm not listening, but because that focuses my attention. And so if I'm sort of sketching or drawing, I can really like listen carefully and grapple with a set of ideas. And so in one of the TV rooms that I was in, I started drawing these panda tarot cards. And then one of my friends or someone else who was in the room, I think, was sort of said, like, you should make a deck out of that. Like, I want a deck out of that. And so I've been slowly and meticulously redrawing a bunch of sad panda tarot cards. (laughs) It's so stupid. (laughs) That's brilliant. So I will ask you my last question now. Jen, what lights you up? Oh, why is this so hard? (laughs) (laughs) Because I think sometimes it feels like it has to be this, the biggest thing in the, you know, world for you that lights you up. But maybe it's, what is the moment where you know that you're like in the right place at the right time? Oh God, that's so good. And you're kind of in, you're, you're in yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A small thing that lights me up is the color, the bright yellow. In my studio, in my apartment, I've painted one wall bright yellow. And in my workspace, I've painted one wall bright yellow. And when I'm in the presence of bright yellow, I feel lit up. I love that. That's also so (laughs) tangible. It's something that we can all do. I'm very affected by color as well. So I love that answer. Jen, thank you so much for coming on Lit Up. I just want to reiterate how smart interesting and cool this book is. How can we follow you if we want to find out everything we need to know about you in the books? Thank you so much for having me on. You can follow me at This Panda is Sad on Instagram or www.jensilverman.com. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Jen Silverman. Her book, We Play Ourselves, is available now and there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.